Welcome back to another Ghosts of the Pacific edition of Ghosts of Arlington, and thank you for joining me for episode 116, Ernie Pyle's War, Part 4. Due to an incredibly busy week at work, I was unable to get an episode published as planned last week, but I am back now. But only long enough to say that this will likely be my last episode for the next three weeks due to some international work travel that I will be taking. The plan had been to finish up Ernie Pyle's story before I left, But with that lost week that I just referenced, the conclusion to the story will have to wait until after I get back from my trip. A conclusion that will likely come in two to three more episodes rather than just one. You will remember that Ernie Pyle always felt like he had missed out when he was too young by just a year to serve in World War I. So when a new war broke out in Europe, he jumped at the chance to go to London and cover the Battle of Britain. He was in the middle of planning a trip to cover the war in Asia when Japan attacked Pearl Harbor and instead returned to the United Kingdom, this time to cover the arriving American GIs training for war, but not before his marriage to Jerry reached a breaking point and the couple divorced, though remained amicable. While he was in the UK, US troops landed in North Africa as part of Operation Torch, and Pyle caught a ship south to cover the fighting. Today, we pick up the story as Ernie Pyle arrives at the front lines where, in his own words, he hopes to be close enough to the shooting to get good and scared a couple of times. In early January 1943, Pyle arrived at Biskra Airfield, the airfield from which American bombers flew daily missions north over Tunisia and Libya. To Ernie's homesick eyes, the area around Biskra reminded him a lot of Albuquerque, of home. The Germans welcomed him just three hours after his arrival by bombing the airfield. For the first time since the London Blitz, Pyle was in real danger. When they weren't being bombed, Pyle spent his time interviewing pilots and mechanics and tracking the arrival and departure of planes, not unlike how he spent his days years earlier when he was on the aviation beat for the news. This is also how he got his first big story from North Africa. With the exotic dateline, a forward airdrome in French North Africa, he told the story of a B-17 bomber a flying fortress called Thunderbird, and her crew, who had all been given up for dead after losing two engines on the same wing, usually a death sentence for a B-17, while on a bombing raid over Tripoli. 
Falling fast and left for lost by the other Americans, the ten-man crew managed to keep the plane aloft despite attacks by German fighters. When the Germans gave up for lack of fuel, Thunderbird flew on alone, scraping through the mountain pass and creeping toward the airfield as dusk fell. As James Tobin tells the story in his book, Ernie Pyle's War, any competent reporter could have woven these facts into a readable tale of skill, courage, and luck. Pyle's version, which he told in three columns, accomplished something larger. In the second and third columns, he told the story as most reporters would have, reconstructing the day's events as the crew of the missing fortress had experienced them. But the first column of the series was different. It was the story of Ernie's day, of the one who had waited. It was the story not of the crew's deeds, but of an observer's first encounter with the mixed emotions of war. He began by setting the scene. It was late afternoon at our desert airdrome. The sun was lazy, the air was warm, and a faint haze of propeller dust hung over the field, giving it softness. Their missions complete, fortresses were landing. All but one. The last report said the fortress couldn't stay in the air more than five minutes. Hours had passed since then, so it was gone. Next came an image other reporters would have left out as a taint on a heroic story. In Pyle's tale, it proved an essential counterpoint. We had already seen death that afternoon, he said, for one of the returning fortresses had released a red flare over the field, and I had stood with others beneath the great plain as they handed its dead pilot, head downward, through the escape hatch onto a stretcher. The faces of his crew were grave and nobody talked very loud. One man clutched a leather cap with blood on it. The pilot's hands were very white. Everybody knew the pilot. He was so young a couple of hours ago. The war came inside us then and we felt it deeply. It was Pyle's first report of a combat death and probably the first he had seen. After the dead pilot was brought down from the plane, Ernie and others ascended the control tower to watch the desert sunset and learn if German bombers were approaching. The day began folding itself up. All the soldiers in the tent camps had finished supper. The noiseless peace that sometimes comes just before dusk hung over the airdrome. Men talked in low tones about the dead pilot and the lost fortress. Then an electric thing happened. A red flare arched across the northern horizon. An officer fired a green flare in response. Pyle and his companions saw the plane, just a tiny black speck on the horizon. It seemed almost on the ground. It was so low and in the first glance we could see that it was barely moving, barely staying in the air. Crippled and alone, Two hours behind all the rest, it was dragging itself home. I am no longer part of the fraternity of flyers, Pyle wrote, but I can feel, and at that moment, I felt something close to human love for that faithful, battered machine, 
that far dark speck struggling towards us with such pathetic slowness. Ernie narrated the bomber down, over parked planes, over the runway, onto the tarmac, whereupon the thousands of men around that vast field suddenly realized that they were weak and that they could hear their hearts pounding. Our ten dead men were miraculously back from the grave. This column, heralded by writers and readers alike as a masterpiece, showed that Pyle had not lost touch with his emotions as he had so feared in the days and weeks after Pearl Harbor, and again after his divorce. And it was significant that his first notable war story did not deal with heroic blows against the enemy, but with service members accomplishing the feat that matters most to the individuals at war, sheer survival. Like many columns to come, a reassuring spirit flowed through it. The pilot's bloody cap and death-white hands were balanced by the miraculous flare in the distance. Death came inside, but life persisted and triumphed. Ernie spent the next four or five months with American troops in North Africa. He split most of his time between the airfield at Biskra and hitching rides forward and back in U.S. convoys, and he continued to write poignant articles about ordinary men transformed into figures in an awesome pageant, terrible yet magnificent. Despite the desert environment and much to Pyle's surprise and dismay, The weather was, in his own words, no better than England's, dark, wet, cold, and disgusting. To fight the cold, the slight pile piled on layer after layer of clothing. He wore rough army coveralls over sweaters and shirts, no tie, a long-billed cap, and heavy overshoes. In the back of whatever vehicle he happened to climb into, he stowed a pistol belt with a quart canteen of water, but no pistol, as correspondents were unarmed, gas mask, helmet, dispatch case with writing materials, a musette bag filled with personal gear, his typewriter, plus a 75-pound bedroll containing four blankets, a tent, and extra clothes. When Pyle arrived at a new location, he would often jump in the chow line with the -the run-of-the-mill troops, introduce himself, and get to know the guys he was surrounded with. Being part of the Correspondence Corps hardly guaranteed him a warm reception, but his actions and demeanor quickly ingratiated him with the soldiers who held many reporters in contempt. Many of those covering the war earned reputations as blowhards. They often hung out at rear echelon headquarters. In the morning, intelligence officers would tell them where the day's action was. There, the reporters would rush, riding shotgun next to army drivers. Once near the action, if they could find it, they would look around and ask a few hurried questions. What happened here? What time? Anyone hurt? What's your name? Who's your commander? They would scribble a few serviceable quotations, then rush back to headquarters to attend press conferences, type their stories, and submit them to press relations officers for censoring. The next day would be the same. But not Ernie Pyle. 
many soldiers wrote home about personal interactions with the man they called, quote, really a swell apple, or a pleasant talker, easygoing, and with a faculty for becoming one of the boys in two seconds flat. The fact that he had crossed the United States several times over the last seven years leading up to the war helped him connect on a personal level with troops from all over the country. One officer who frequently ran into Pyle in Africa later said, Ernie never seemed to be trying to get a story. Men were natural with him because of this. When the banter contained something Ernie could use, he would write it. He never tried to guide the conversation into channels that would be useful to him. Pyle had always been the outsider with people he covered, a casual observer. Now with the army, he was possessed by a feeling of being in the heart of everything, of being a part of it, no mere onlooker, but a member of the team. While in Africa, Pyle experienced firsthand German Stuka dive-bombing attacks, artillery duels, and was even present for the then-largest tank battle of the war, a battle that turned into quite a defeat for the Americans, who had to hastily withdraw over the Kasserine Pass. He felt a particular urge to explain that debacle to the American public, to defend the troops that had fought so hard there but had been unable to gain victory over their German opposition. He didn't whitewash the defeat he called damn humiliating and a complete melee either. Writing of the U.S. troops, he said, quote, You need feel no shame nor concern about their ability. I have seen them in battle and afterwards, and there is nothing wrong with the common American soldier. His fighting spirit is good. His morale is okay. The deeper he gets into a fight, the more of a fighting man he becomes. This time with the troops certainly dispelled the romantic notions he had about war when he missed out on World War I. He now knew it was simply a hard job the fighting men were about, a job they hoped to survive so they could get on with the rest of their lives. I don't know, is war dramatic or isn't it? Certainly there are great tragedies, unbelievable heroics, even a constant undertone of comedy. Is it the job of us writers to transfer all that drama back to you folks at home? Most of the other correspondents have the ability to do that, but when I sit down to write, here is what I see instead. Men at the front suffering and wishing they were somewhere else. Men in routine jobs just behind the lines bellyaching because they can't get to the front all of them desperately hungry for somebody to talk to besides themselves. No women to be heroes in front of, damn little wine to drink, precious little song, cold and fairly dirty, just toiling from day to day in a world full of insecurity, discomfort, homesickness, and a dulled sense of danger. The drama and romance are here, of course, but they're like the famous falling tree in the forest. They're no good unless there's somebody around to hear. Pyle was the one who would be around to hear, and what he would hear was not the old romance of Victorian wars, not the gallant heroism of the Rough Riders' charge, but a new heroism of little routine men, 
And it was these hearings that had many back home saying that Ernie Pyle is the only writer who brings the war home to them. When Pyle arrived in Africa, his column was carried in 42 newspapers with a combined circulation of 3.3 million readers. Less than six months later, the number was up to 122 papers and nearly 9 million readers. After the defeat at Kesserine Pass pushed the U.S. from Tunisia into Algiers in February 1943, everyone figured the next decisive battle wouldn't come until the spring, so Pyle, eager to escape the cold now that there was no front to be at, decided to take a month to visit troops at remote U.S. outposts in the storied regions of Africa, the Sahara, the Equatorial Jungles, and the Nile River Valley. While on this trip, he received a cable from colleagues at the United Press in London that cheered him greatly. It read, New York reports you married former wife by proxy. He happily wrote to Jerry that he knew this meant she had gotten help and was managing her demons, and knew this meant she was living life again rather than just enduring it. He also said, I think one of the reasons I wanted this is that if anything should happen to me before the war is over, I wanted to go out that way, as we were. Not that I'm counting on anything happening, but in a war as all-encompassing as this one, anything can happen, of course. any rate, what I'm trying to say is that now I feel some peace with the world again. Life was incomplete and purposeless before. I hate and detest the war and the tragedy and insanity of it, but I know I can't escape, and I truly believe the only thing left to do is be in it to the hilt. The Allies launched their spring offensive on April 22, 1943, and Pyle was back in time to join it. During his short absence, he noticed a change in the frontline combat troops that he himself had not gone through. Before Kesserine, they had been, quote, merely civilians thrust into Army Green. Now they were soldiers he noticed the transformation in the casual and workshop manner in which they now talk about killing. He didn't hear this sort of talk in the rear echelons, only among the rifle companies at the tip of the spear. The frontline soldier wants to kill individually or in vast numbers. He wants to see the Germans overrun, mangled, butchered. It was a profound difference, shocking yet necessary. The frontline soldier wants it to be got over by the physical process of his destroying enough Germans to end it. He is truly at war. The rest of us, no matter how hard we work, are not. This offensive was Pyle's first time with frontline infantry soldiers in action, and after two weeks of fierce combat, including the final three days of the operation where he was constantly under fire with the G.I.s for 72 hours, he was still with them when German soldiers began to surrender en masse. While Ernie bonded with and loved U.S. service members of all ranks and specialties, during these two weeks of fighting, he quickly developed a soft spot for the infantry, 
who he viewed as war's ultimate underdog, and recognized they were, and always have been, vital to victory. With U.S. victory in Africa, Pyle returned to Algiers to catch up on writing and found a stack of mail waiting for him. He was simultaneously perplexed, proud, and a little disgusted to learn he was now the number one war correspondent in the war. Many soldiers Ernie had briefly mentioned in passing, in one column or another, were then tracked down and given full spreads by other reporters after their brush with fame in an Ernie Pyle piece. His people back at the news had struck a deal for Pyle's Africa columns to be published in a book called Here Is Your War, the advance for which was roughly one-third of his salary for all of the previous year. He joked with his editor that if he wasn't careful, he'd get rich, but in a letter home to his father, his mother had passed away a few years earlier, he said since he was over where the fighting was taking place and he was open to the same dangers as the soldiers, he didn't see it as profiteering, though he did feel guilty that the soldiers weren't making anywhere near the kind of money he was. Apart from the professional correspondence, he received so many personal letters from family, friends, acquaintances, and total strangers that he couldn't possibly respond to them all personally, so he took two whole columns to acknowledge and thank people for them. He was honored when Stars and Stripes, the Army's newspaper published in every theater of war, asked him to write about the G.I.s. In the article, he joked, I don't know why I should be telling you about yourselves. If you don't know where you're at and how you feel by this time, you must be too dumb to read anyhow. Instead, he told them about himself. I've traveled 20,000 miles in Africa, got myself shot at once or twice, and died a thousand deaths from freezing. I know three generals by their first names. That part's true, by the end of the war, several more generals would insist he call them by their first names too, and have almost been court-martialed once. I've stolen one jeep and had two stolen from me. Since leaving home, I've sent back nearly 300,000 words about you and your current careers. You didn't suspect you were that interesting, did you? Well, maybe you aren't, but brother, I've got a living to make. Pyle's most notable bit of post-victory writing in Africa was for the epilogue of Here Is Your War and served as a fitting epilogue for the American warfighters in that theater. It was a meditation on what they, Ernie included, had all gone through together in the Africa campaign. After letting loose of life as it was, the new war life finally became a normal life to us. Early in the campaign, there had been days when I stay in my tent alone and gloomed with the desperate belief that it was actually possible for us to lose this war. But now I no longer fear defeat. Soldiers who might have accepted a negotiated peace six months earlier just to get home now worked with a vague but growing individual acceptance of the bitter fact that we must win the war or else. We have washed out the bulk of our miscomprehensions, have abandoned most of our faculties, 
and have hardened down to a work-weary and battle-dirtied machine. Toughening came at a price. Our men can't make this change from normal civilian into warriors and remain the same people. Their language has turned from mere profanity to obscenity. They put little stock in the norms of property, wasting or stealing it with abandon, figuring what's wrong with a small case of requisitioning when murder is the overall goal. And what of Pyle after half a year at war? It may be that the war has changed me along with the rest, but the changes were subtler and he struggled to name them. He senses small redemptions, for instance, a new patience with humanity that I've never had before. When you've lived with the unnatural mass cruelty that mankind is capable of inflicting upon itself, you find yourself dispossessed of the faculty for blaming one poor man for the triviality of his faults. I don't see how any survivor of war can ever be cruel to anything ever again. Based on his style and the soldiers he enjoyed interacting with, there was never any risk that Ernie Pyle would turn into a reporter focusing on the big picture or strategic level of war in his columns. As I quoted John Steinbeck back in episode 113 referencing the chief of staff of the army at the time, that was General Marshall's war. Pyle himself explained why he focused on tactical warfare when he wrote, I haven't written about the big picture because I don't know anything about it. And he was being completely honest. He wrote human interest stories. I only know what we see from our worm's eye view, and our segment of the picture consists only of tired and dirty soldiers who are alive and don't want to die of long darkened convoys in the middle of the night, of shocked, silent men wandering back down the hill from battle, of chow lines and anti-malaria tablets and foxholes and burning tanks and locals holding up eggs and the rustle of high-flown shells, of jeeps and petrol dumps and smelly bedding rolls and sea rations and cactus patches and blown bridges and hospital tents and shirt collars greasy black from months of wearing, and of laughter too, and anger, and wine, and lovely flowers, and constant cussing. All these it is composed of, and of graves, and graves, and graves. The war in Africa may be won, but next time, and a reminder, I say next time and not next week because of my upcoming travels, We will follow Ernie and the Allied forces as they look to their next objective, located 100 miles or 160 kilometers north of Tunisia, the Italian island of Sicily. It is time to invade Europe and take the fight to the Axe's front door. If you need more Ghosts of Arlington content in your life, there are pictures related to every episode on the website, www.ghostsofarlingtonpodcast.com
You can help others learn about the podcast by leaving a five-star rating and review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you really want to make my day, refer the show to a friend. And remember, fear not death, for the sooner we die, the longer we shall be immortal. Thank you.